Good afternoon, everybody. I'm George Selgin, the director of Cato's new Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. And I'm very pleased to uh, be able to uh, introduce uh, the first of our book forums. Our uh, speaker today is, uh, is Jim Grant. Uh, I will come to introduce him in a moment, but I also I first want to introduce our two commentators. Let me first say that uh, after the uh, discussion, uh, we will have lunch upstairs. On the way to lunch, there are that which is on the second floor, there will be copies of Jim Grant's book uh, available, and Jim has graciously offered to sign some of those, so don't forget to stop there. Uh, and... Uh, 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 then, of course, lunch is just on down the hall on the same level. Our commentators today are Jim Powell. Jim is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and a historian. He's written many books on various aspects of, uh, of, of history. He's currently working on a, a rather uh, ambitious history of, of liberty versus tyranny, broadly speaking. He's also the author of one of my absolute favorite books on the Depression that no one has forgotten, the Great Depression. It's called FDR's Folly, and for my money, it's the best survey of just exactly why that depression was indeed great. Larry White is uh, my former mentor at NYU and former colleague at the University of Georgia. He is now a professor at George Mason University. Larry has also written several very, very uh, good books. Uh, the latest one in 2012 is A History of Modern Macroeconomic Thought called The Clash of Economic Ideas. Uh, before that, he wrote The Theory of Monetary Institutions, which everyone should read who is interested in real monetary economics. Uh, and uh, finally, The Theory of Free Banking, his pathbreaking work on the Scottish free banking episode. It's free banking in Britain, sorry. Theory of free banking, sorry, mixed them up. Yeah, thank you, Kurt and Larry. Sorry, the the free banking in Britain. Uh, Jim Grant, I've known since 1982, actually. We met at uh, a, a, a Committee for Monetary Research and Education meeting that year, and I think you were wearing the same glasses, Jim, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, he's uh, best known as the author of Grant's interest rate Observer, one of the most highly regarded uh, uh, newsletters about happenings on Wall Street and the Fed. Uh, I confess I've only read a few issues, the, the ones Jim shared with me because they refer to my work. Uh, I thought they were excellent, those issues. <laughs> Can't afford the subscription, but maybe I could if I already had it because I'd be richer. Uh, but in any event, I have read several of Jim's books. Uh, besides the one that's the topic of today's forum, I especially enjoyed his history of finance and banking in America called Money of the Mind, which is full of amazing trivia about banking history, such as the fact that Citibank was once a well-managed bank. Uh, and uh, more interestingly still, that there used to be a bunch of such well-managed uh, banks in New York, 
I'm not sure exactly what happened. I seem to recall, if I remember Jim's book correctly, that the government had something to do with it. In any event, our speaker is going to be talking today about his new book on the forgotten depression of 1920-21, a fascinating account of the depression no one talks about anymore. Because it ended so quickly, the question is, why did that happen? And Jim will now tell us at least part of the story. Jim? Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Um, I thank you, Cato, and I thank you, George. Um, today is kind of a red-letter day in, um, in finance. Uh, uh, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange Group, CME Group, is conferring its Financial Innovation Award on um, a former chairman of the Fed, Ben S. Bernanke. Um, now, there's an irony in this. The, uh, the CME Group is the foremost manager of open and free markets, and one might characterize the former chairman as the not champion of open and free markets, especially with respect to interest rate products in which the CME Group excels. And the, uh, the text of the award uh, referred to the chairman's, the former chairman's, quote, leveraged, leveraged knowledge uh, which certainly is a posit in its own way. Uh, we live, I think, in this award crystallized the fact we live in a time of almost reflexive inter inter intervention. Uh, the Japanese economy is measured, has begun uh, an official recession, we hear, and, uh, and the, uh, the uncontested response to this fact is uh, still more massive printing of money and spending of it. Um, the story of the Forgotten Depression. By the way, I'm talking to my publishers. I think it would be a little less self-effacing if the next edition were called The Previously Forgotten Depression. Uh, but as it is, the book is entitled The Forgotten Depression. It deals with the events uh, in the aftermath of World War I, culminating um, uh, in the early 20s. And indeed, the narrative continues a bit into 1930. Um, I propose to tell you a little bit about what happened. Um, uh, why it happened, and uh, and how it uh, it came to a a timely and uh, rather prosperous ending, um, and then to reflect a little bit about what might how this might all bear on the present day's uh, finances. Um, what happened, pure and simple, was a uh, a mighty inflation, an unprecedentedly sharp collapse in prices, an actual deflation, and then uh, uh, a remarkably dynamic uh, recovery from that. Uh, events that uh, I think our present-day policymakers and politicians would give their eye teeth to, uh, to repeat, certainly the dynamic recovery part. Um, uh, the story begins um, in the uh, late 19-teens, America had entered the First World War had, uh, had uh, participated in the victory, uh, culminating with the armistice of November 11th, 1918. And, and then what happened is what was not supposed to have happened. In every preceding great conflict, uh, certainly in modern times, uh, uh, the peace had, uh, had been marked by a collapse in, in speculative enterprise and in prices. Uh, 
Peace had meant deflation. It had meant deflation in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars and the aftermath of the Civil War in America, and people had prepared themselves for the same in 1918. But what happened instead was the continued levitation of prices. Uh, as measured, the CPI, which had been rising in the low to mid-double digits in 1915 and 16 and 17 and 18, continued to do so in 1919. And people organized their affairs for what seemed to be, uh, on the evidence, a, a more or less permanent state of, of, uh, of high speculative spirits. Um, one saw this throughout the length and breadth of America and Detroit, uh, General Motors, even then the great behemoth of, of American industry, uh, erected the largest headquarters building extant anywhere, I think. Uh, Billy Durant, the president of General Motors, speculated on leverage and with great success in rising shares of GM. In Kansas City, a returning a National Guard artillery captain named Harry Truman opened a haberdashery with his wartime buddy, Eddie Jacobson. Uh, farmers planted fence post to fence post. They, uh, they couldn't uh, imagine um, why prices of their crops would not continue to rise. Um, and uh, in New York City, uh, the largest bank of the time, uh, the National City Bank, subsequently renamed Citigroup, um, lent not wisely but well against the collateral of sugar on the island of Cuba. Um, these were representative of the response of uh, Americans to uh, the price signals sent out from principally Washington, D.C. The, the First World War had been financed mainly on the cuff. And um, uh, the Treasury borrowed, and the Federal Reserve then wet behind the ears uh, was dragooned or certainly enlisted in the public service. It, the Fed, it extended credit uh, for individuals and for other institutions to, uh, uh, to buy the Treasury's debt. The money supply went up, interest rates went down. Uh, there's a great levitation of prices on the back of what was a, a really enjoyable credit inflation. Um, uh, this lasted until it couldn't last, at which point it stopped. Uh, and the stopping point uh, occurred in the spring of 1920 um, in Tokyo, where they traded silk. Uh, suddenly, there was an unscripted and unexpected collapse in the price of silk. Other commodity prices began to buckle. Um, and uh, the world over, uh, the idea began to take hold that, in fact, uh, the speculative aftermath of the war had ended. Um, in 1929, a great thunderclap from the corner of Broad and Wall in the shape of the stock market crash signaled the close of one credit cycle. In 1920, there was no such single event, but rather a serial collapse in the prices of, of commodities, um, both at retail and especially at wholesale. Um, uh, nobody had seen the likes of it. Uh, uh, over the course of perhaps nine months, the average of wholesale commodity prices collapsed on the order of 40 to 45 percent. Um, uh, contemporaries termed this a debacle without parallel. Now, before going a little deeper into the symptoms of the 
depression that in fact unfolded, I think I should have a, a quick note on a, a kind of a scholarly footnote, not that I set up as a scholar, but a scholarly footnote on differences of opinion with respect to the severity of this cyclical event. Um, uh, what to call it? Uh, uh, prices down, as I say, 40-odd percent at wholesale. New York Stock Exchange listed equities down 45 percent. Industrial production down 30-odd percent. Uh, inflation, uh, um, no. Deflation, uh, evident in the inventory cycle. Um, uh, unemployment, not then measured, but certainly severe, evidently, in the double digits. Um, contemporaries call this a depression. There is, however, a school of thought that holds that uh, uh, this cyclical event was nothing more than a very, very severe cyclical uh, recession. Uh, Christina Romer, an accomplished economist out west, uh, has uh, made this argument in a learned paper. Um, my line on this is that uh, uh, one goes with uh, contemporary observations, and I will recite some facts and figures that I think support the idea that, uh, that what happened was much more akin to what we might call a depression. Um, uh, what were some of these symptoms? Well, uh, corporate profits collapsed. Uh, what else happened? Um, uh, all the physical measures of production uh, registered similar collapses. Uh, in a post-mortem that the Herbert Hoover-led Commerce Department produced towards the end of the 1920s, um, uh, uh, they had this to say. They said that, uh, let's see, auto production down 23%. Uh, the number of companies reporting net income in excess of 100,000, that was down 45%. This is all peak to trough, 1920, 21. Uh, hourly manufacturing wages down 22%. Um, uh, between 1920, 1990 and 1920 on the one hand, and 1920, uh, average disposable farm income uh, was down 57%, no small thing in an economy in which uh, agriculture still contributed between 17 and 18% of national income. Everyone either farmed or knew someone who did. This was a terribly dispiriting collapse in the farm economy. So, um, you know, I say, but I have a trump for Ms. Romer that my trump card is, the, uh, is a song. Uh, uh, that was written and became very popular in that era, and it was, it contained the lyrics, the, the rich get richer and the poor get children. This is, of course, the, the tune, Ain't We Got Fun. I submit this to you, ladies and gentlemen, as a clinching piece of non-econometric <clears throat> um, evidence uh, in the service of the idea that this was some light show in 1920 and 21. So down things went. Um, massed area. What to do? What to do? Um, does anyone recall the, uh, 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 in Hong Kong in 1961 through 70 or so, there was a, a financial secretary named Copperthwaite. And um, uh, I think it was later Sir John Copperthwaite, but at the time it was Mr. Copperthwaite. On principle, refused to collect um, what were macroeconomic data from the colony of Hong Kong on the grounds that someone would put those numbers to use uh, through interventions and thereby to stymie the 
the spontaneity and the workings of the price mechanism in the colony of Hong Kong. Um, that was not the explicit policy of America in 1920, but it was the virtual policy. Uh, economic data were very sparse. Um, and the government uh, actually didn't know what was going on. Uh, uh, the Republicans convened in 1920 and for their um, run at the presidency in the fall, and uh, the word economy uh, did not appear in the uh, platform, except in the context of uh, economy and government. Uh, the administration of Woodrow Wilson was incapacitated, as indeed was the president. He had suffered a stroke, of course, famously while trying to sell his League of Nations out west. And, uh, and the administration of Wilson did nothing in the face of what it really couldn't measure. Uh, the program was to balance the budget and restore American public finance to a peacetime footing. And the, balance, the budget was, in fact, balanced in both Depression years. Uh, the Federal Reserve, uh, then still a novice at making errors, it has become much more proficient at that. Uh, but then it was uh, still in short pants in the policy-making department. And uh, uh, it felt, did the Fed, that uh, it should first shake itself loose from the baleful influence of the Treasury. And then it should do its best to restore uh, the price level to a proper peacetime footing. That's entailed some... Uh, pretty severe deflationary pressure. I want you to listen to the, to the words of, of, um, of uh, Benjamin Strong, who was the, I guess he was the Janet Yellen of his day. He ran the New York Fed, but sensibly he ran the institution. And, uh, and uh, uh, Benjamin Strong was by no means a cruel man, but he was a believer in the... Uh, uh, in the classical approach to money and banking, he, he, he believed that, uh, uh, that if inflation were perpetuated in the American price system, it would ultimately uh, deliver a much greater calamity than what was uh, to come in the aftermath of the boom. So here is Benjamin Strong holding forth in private well before uh, the cycle had turned. It was a rather pr prophetic letter he wrote. But here is Strong thinking about what was to come in American monetary policy. And he writes as follows. He said, uh, uh, he said that uh, he wanted a somewhat changed policy, not the inflationary uh, treasury subsidizing policy of the war years. He wanted something else. And he, what he said he wanted was, um, was deflation. That's what he said. And he said, um, he said he also believed that this must be accompanied by some rather serious losses because our increased prices have occurred in a country enjoying exceptional prosperity in which merchants and manufacturers have unfortunately maintained too large stocks of goods as compared with their foreign competitors. I believe this period will be accompanied by a considerable degree of unemployment, but not for very long, and that after a year or two of discomfort, embarrassment, some losses, some disorders caused by unemployment, we will emerge with an almost invincible banking position. So that was that was the that was the the sensibly speaking the head of American monetary policy reflecting on what was to come. So it came, the storm came, uh, and it passed. And what might account for its passing? Well, you'll recall that uh, just now that uh, Strong had reflected on the outsized inventory positions of American enterprise, and they were indeed 
outsize. And one of the things that accounts for the brevity, relatively speaking, 18 months of this violent cyclical disturbance and the dynamism of the subsequent recovery is the inventory adjustments made by American business acting in an economy unburdened with excessive regulation. And I want to favor you ever so briefly with uh, a few facts and figures from uh, the DuPont Company. Uh, the DuPont Company was, uh, of course, was desolated to see the close of the First World War. The market for explosives dried up almost overnight. Uh, it was well managed. They made adjustments. And here is what it looked like top to bottom. Uh, inventories written down by half, earnings per share from $17.1920 to $2.35 in 1921, sales from $94 million in 1920 to $55 million. Uh, Irene DuPont, who was running the company, um, wrote to the stockholders and said, look, we either face a new normal or we face a cycle. He said, I vote for the idea that we face a cycle. He said, in the past year's production, we have drawn for raw material, one half of our stocks from our own warehouses and purchased only one half. If every other company with which we did business had done the same, everything would be down by half, as indeed, in his case, in the case of that branch of industry, it had been down by half. So the inventory cycle ended. Uh, people stopped writing down inventory. They started writing up inventory once prices turned higher. Uh, finally, in closing, I want to favor you stock market buffs with a window on what a governmentally unmedicated bear market bottom in the stock market looks like. In 1921, in August, at the lows in equities, uh, the Coca-Cola company was trading for 1.7 times earnings and priced to yield on a dividend basis five and a quarter percent. Radio Corporation of America, not then revealed to be America's preeminent growth stock of the 1920s, was priced at exactly one times 1923 earnings. Uh, the Gillette Safety Razor Company, which had sold as many blades and razors in 1920 as it had in 1918, was priced to a dividend yield of 9% and a PE of about 5 or 6. The price mechanism worked. Uh, the labor market worked to, to the desolation of many people who suffered, but it worked. Uh, America uh, came out of it. Uh, uh, and the 20s proverbially roared. And I thank you. And now Jim Powell to comment. You know, it's curious that FDR is still considered to be a better peacetime president than Warren Harding. Two-thirds of FDR's presidency was during the Great Depression. The economy expanded in that period, but soon got a recession on top of the Depression. And as we know, FDR was plagued throughout by high unemployment. Nothing he tried seemed to work, and high unemployment didn't go away until the government began drafting some 10 million young men for World War II. As Mr. Grant explains, Harding had to deal with the Depression of 1920 that was almost as severe from the peak to the trough as the Great Contraction from 1929 to 1933. Yet under Harding, 
the economy turned around in less than two years and the Roaring Twenties were underway. This continued for almost a decade until the Fed figured out how to end the stock market boom and President Herbert Hoover raised taxes, restricted trade, and tried to keep wages above market levels, which made it more expensive for employers to hire people. Apparently, because the 1920 Depression was ended so quickly, political historians have not considered it to be a serious challenge, and they have preferred to tell the story of how FDR, with his charming fireside chats, lifted the spirits of the American people in a crisis he could not resolve. If FDR had served only during the Great Depression, I expect he probably would be considered a failure. FDR's role on the winning side of World War II salvaged his reputation and his charismatic personality dispelled whatever critical thoughts historians might have had. Because Harding dispatched a depression in less than a quarter of the time FDR struggled with the Great Depression, Harding surely ranks among the greatest depression fighters successful where FDR failed. It's well worth reconsidering the wisdom of Harding's depression-related policies, and I'm delighted Mr. Grant has produced such a fine book. I believe Harding's key insight was that if economic adjustments must be made because of changing, changing circumstances, the faster the transition, the better for everyone. In Harding's case, of course, the changing circumstances were the end of World War I and the return to a peacetime economy. Harding recognized that it was a waste of time for politicians to harangue people about what they should do. People do what they have to do, and they often put off difficult things as long as they can. Harding understood that the best policy was to let reality provide incentives that nobody could argue with. Minimize government interference with market prices, wages, and interest rates that provide the clearest signals about what everybody's best options are. Military contractors had to recognize that government military contracts were going away and they had to identify civilian markets they might serve or they would go out of business. This had to be done quickly since there weren't any government bailouts. Employees released by government contractors had to figure out how their skills might be adapted for businesses in the private sector or they would go hungry. There were no long-term unemployment benefits, no stimulus programs, no entitlements, none of the things that would undermine the urgency of adapting to changing circumstances fast. Harding made it easy as possible for employers to establish new businesses and adapt existing businesses. He let wages fall rapidly, and soon they were low enough that cost structures were in line with new realities and employers were able to hire people and they were eager to hire people at those bargain rates. Harding let prices fall rapidly until there were consumer bargains galore and people scrambled to resume buying. Harding didn't churn out costly regulations. He didn't try to increase everybody's energy costs. He didn't claim he could spend other people's money better than they could if he could only get his hands on it. He didn't try to transform America. What he did was to promote private sector growth 
by reducing the cost of government and thereby increasing resources available in the private sector. Federal spending was cut about 50% and federal taxes took about 40% less out of the private sector. During the years of Harding and his successor Calvin Coolidge, taxes and spending were cut about 50% and about 30% of the national debt was paid off. In other words, this wasn't just a one-time thing with Harding, the policies were sustained and that's really about as hard as it is to establish policies in the first place. There were budget surpluses every year during the 1920s. This was the last time that federal finances were under control, something that would be extremely difficult to achieve today because of entitlements, wars, and government employee unions. When chronicling the 1920s, most writers seem to have dwelled on stock market speculation, but it's important to understand this was a remarkably broad-based boom. Large numbers of people entered the middle class. Employers were able to pay more and more people pensions. Spending soared on radios, appliances, cars, homes. Multitudes had leisure time and enjoyed cheap pleasures at movie palaces and ballparks. Literacy rates climbed over 95%, and the Book of the Month Club and Literary Guild pioneered the mass marketing of books. Blacks improved their lot by joining the Great Migration from the South to take advantage of opportunities in the northern cities. During the Roaring Twenties, unemployment dropped to 1.8%, 1.8%, the lowest peacetime rates in more than a century. In Mr. Grant's book, I might like to have seen more detail about the working of the Harding College policies that conquered a depression and generated this tremendous prosperity. I believe he has done a terrific job challenging the conventional wisdom, and I hope he finds a lot of readers. Thank you, Jim. And now, Larry White. Um, I was asked to uh, review Jim's book for Barron's, and the uh, copy editor there insisted on taking out lots of boring material and sort of punching up the rest of the text. But here you'll get to hear all the boring stuff that was left out. I think that's important. Uh, I did start off the review uh, saying in my own words that uh, this book is a page turner, and I uh, meant that. I mean, it's a book that you can give to your non-economist friends <laughs> or relatives. Uh, so it's the story of what uh, Jim has slyly called the uh, America's last governmentally unmedicated depression. And the story is uh, mostly told through a series of vignettes featuring the major players in business and in government. Uh, you hardly notice that these vignettes are being played out on a stage that's carefully built from solid timbers of good economic theory and uh, relevant statistics. Uh, but as the preface of the book reveals, so it's not a secret, uh, the hero of the narrative is not any of these individuals, it's the price mechanism. Uh, the, the book is just loaded with uh, perceptive observations and wit, something uh, you can't say about many uh, economic history books. Uh, I want to talk a little about the comment, uh, sorry, the, co the contrast between uh, Jim's account and the outlook that academic economists have on this uh, event. 
And although it's not completely forgotten, it's fair to say that it's uh, understudied. And in part, <laughs> in part because the fixation of empirical macroeconomists these days is on post-war data. Everything has to be calibrated and fitted to the post-war data. So before World War II, uh, it's kind of sunk it into a black hole. Uh, but if, if people with modern approaches tried to explain this recession, they'd be uh, in trouble because we've got a prompt self-correction which doesn't really fit the standard narrative of a world of sticky prices in which falling prices mean trouble. Uh, well, pressure to, to reduce prices means trouble because the prices won't reduce and you'll just get unsold inventories. But here's a case where prices fell very rapidly, about 14% per annum for a year and a half, or about 19% total. Uh, between June 1920 and December 1921, that's faster than they fell at the start of the Great Depression, and yet real output contracted less in the same time frame, same number of months. Uh, so it's hard to make sense of this if you believe with Ben Bernanke, who's been mentioned, that falling prices are always a source of trouble uh, rather than a curative. Uh, I think the set of facts actually supports much better the less fashionable, fashionable perspective, which has been long advanced by uh, Leland Yeager, uh, that once aggregate demand has fallen, your alternatives are falling prices or falling output. Falling prices reduce output losses. Uh, but in the world of New Keynesian sticky price models, the only timely remedy is to pump up aggregate demand. Uh, 1920 to 21, as the book shows us, worked a little differently. The Fed did not try to lean against the wind in the sense that it did not start cutting rates as soon as industrial production turned down. I have a slide. Could I see the slide? There we go. Uh, so here's what you see. In, in February 1920, the discount rate was there at 6%. And even though industrial production was, had started to decline, they raised it again to 7%. Uh, and it remained at 7% for 10 months while industrial production was declining all the way down to 3.8. And only then did the Fed start cutting interest rates. Uh, and I think the reason is the Fed wanted to wring the inflation out of the system that had been introduced in World War I. So the red line is uh, the producer price index. And once that flattens out, then the discount rate cuts uh, are felt to be safe again. Uh, and so the discount rate comes down and industrial production starts to recover. Uh, okay, that's enough of the slide. <laughs> Meanwhile, the fiscal authorities, that's uh, Harding and Andrew Mellon, his Treasury Secretary. Uh, Harding, of course, was just one of the presidents who had the privilege of serving under Andrew Mellon. Uh, doubled the federal budget surplus between 1920 and 1922. They cut spending nearly by half from its inflated wartime levels, which had continued after the war ended uh, under Wilson. They cut spending nearly by half, doubled the budget surplus, by great contrast to what Herbert Hoover would do in the first 18 months uh, after the stock market crash in 1929. But in 2021, after 18 months of adjustments and liquidations, Prices and wages had fallen to levels that cleared the markets for goods and assets and labor, and then the economy was able to recover. Uh, and, and Jim's book points out very usefully that uh, the commitment to the international gold standard helped here, 
contrary to the view that uh, it's a depressing force, uh, because people expected a return uh, to the price level that had prevailed before the war, and so price and wage setters were not so reluctant to adjust. They knew adjustment was coming. So stickiness is not you know, just a given. It depends on what monetary regime you live in and what people have come to expect about that regime. So, uh, so much for the argument that the gold standard must mean deep depressions because sometimes it calls for falling prices and falling prices are, must be a disaster. Uh, at the end of the book, uh, Jim contrasts this recession to the Great Depression. Uh, there, the opening deflation was a surprise. It wasn't expected because the Fed had been keeping the price level, or the Fed's policy had been keeping the price level uh, pretty flat from 1922 to 1929. So there was a lot of resistance then to cutting prices and wages. And of course, Herbert Hoover tried to persuade businesses not to cut wages uh, on the view that that would cut worker purchasing power. He didn't seem to recognize that if the wage rate didn't adjust, then the quantity of labor employed might adjust downward, and so total worker income might actually decline. Uh, there's some Austrian school influence in the book, which I'm happy to see, of course. Uh, but here it just means straightforward price theory uh, applied to the distortive effects of easy money on credit and capital markets. But uh, I'm happy to see a lot of citations to uh, the best Austrian account of the period, which is Banking and the Business Cycle by Phillips McManus and Nelson. Uh, so the sort of policy implication is that uh, government does less to amplify the boom and less to prolong the bust if it keeps its hands off, letting the working of the gold standard uh, govern the money supply, by contrast to giving discretion to central bankers, and by letting the market adjust output prices, asset prices, and wages promptly to clear markets, by contrast to Hoover's policy of trying to stop wage adjustments or the more recent policy of trying to stop adjustments in the price of housing uh, by purchasing trillions in mortgage-backed securities. Uh, one thing the book doesn't discuss but might have uh, is the possibility, which Phillips McManus and Nelson also raised, that the deflation didn't go quite far enough in 1920-21. The price level fell, as I said, 19% below its post-war level, but it remained 57% above its 1914 level. So all the inflation that had been introduced uh, during the war was not removed. And there's a recent paper by two economists at Wake Forest, uh, Sandeep Mazumder and John H. Wood, who argue that central banks around the world were jerry-rigging the gold exchange standard to try to keep the price level up. Uh, but that was a self-eroding arrangement because at a low purchasing power of gold, less gold was being produced. Uh, and if, if that's true, then the economy of the Roaring Twenties was not built on such a solid foundation. But that's a kind of wonkish concern. Uh, the Forgotten Depression, thank goodness, is not a book written for academics. <laughs> it deserves a very wide audience. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. Uh, we now have some time for questions from the audience. Uh, <clears throat> in asking questions, please wait to be called on and then wait for one of our uh, uh, interns to bring a microphone. We've got one right up here in the middle to start with. And 
please also announce your name and affiliation and direct the question to one person if you can. Thank you. Um, I don't know if I want to direct it to one, but I would rather direct it to all, whoever could answer it. Uh, my name is Steve Hankin, and my, my reaction has always been about this recovery in the early 20s that why is it that politicians have not seized on this today, at least to, to argue that why are we doing things so differently than they did if what they did in the, tw in the early 20s worked so well? Why is it not part of the political discussion? Um, I think, uh, is it Steve, is it? No. Uh, I, I give this book six weeks. It'll be right out there in the middle. Right. <laughs> um, I, 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 if I were running the, uh, the federal establishment, I can see all manner of reasons for not bringing this episode up into public discussion. Um, uh, there is a, a, a vibrant industry in intervention. I think the Fed employs almost all of the, I mean, Fed must be the biggest employer of PhD economists, is it not, Larry? Mm -hmm. um, I don't think these, I, I think that the intentions are honorable and, and certainly the institutions are powerful, but I, I think there's a, a very, very formidable institutional uh, force for intervention. And certainly the, uh, the uh, economic theorists have built the framework on which this force can thrive and, and people, you know, they, they have carried the day so far as the discussion goes. You know, people also will say, uh, I've heard this, that, uh, well, 1920, 20, everything was different. Uh, to a degree, everything was different, to be sure. And if things were always the same as they were, historians would be much richer than they are. But, but what so struck me in, during 2008 was listening to uh, uh, the central bankers talk and, the, and the, uh, the Mandarin class and policymaking. And the Great Depression of the 1930s completely monopolized the market in historical analogy. I don't think, I think you can do a news search and uh, you could find scarcely any, any mention of what happened only nine years earlier. And, and the economy of 1920-21, if that is irrelevant to today, it so must be the economy of 1929-1933 because they were not so different. In fact, by 1930 or so, the economy of 1930 was about the same size as that of 1920. So I don't know about the efficacy of of flexible prices and labor markets in the current setting, as, as Jim Powell mentioned, of, of, of long-term unemployment benefits, of disability payments, of the entire federal apparatus of income support. I'm not sure about the political efficacy of it, but I do know from a point of view, as it were, of historical hygiene and intellectual honesty, that you can't not pay attention to this episode if you were drawing your analogies for policymaking in the 1930s. Hi, Scott Hafley uh, with Morgan Stanley. Um, can you talk a little bit about what the levels of debt were in the system, public and private, in the early 20s relative to today and how that may have influenced the decision-making differently than the decision-making today? Yeah. Um, I dare say that Jim and Larry might have at their fingertips or on the tips of their tongues better data 
that I have. I think I have cited in this book uh, the findings of, um, I mean, who's the, uh, um, the economist um, who did the uh, good work on wages? Um, uh, anyway, after you buy a copy of this book, <laughs> there is, and towards the end of it, where you compare the 1930s with the 1920s, you'll see a citation having to do with private debt. And it, the contention, the, the scholarship there shows that there was the, the, the weight of private debt was at least as substantial in 1929-30 as it was in 1920-21. Uh, certainly the burden of public debt was heavier in 1920-21 because as, um, as Larry mentioned, so much of it had been liquidated over the course of the, of the boom years. Larry, yeah, I, I don't remember the ratio of debt to GDP coming out of the First World War, but it, it rose enormously during the war. And it was understood that prudent policy was to p start paying it down now that the war was over. And so that was part of the motivation for running budget surpluses as soon as possible. Lee O'Hanian is a name I couldn't oh, come yeah, up with yeah. a moment ago, but it, it was his paper I cited. In we, we seem to have lost that uh, article of uh, fiscal religion. <laughs> Jim Powell, did you want to add anything on this? Uh, all right, next question, please. Hyman Arbonne, uh, President of National Economist Club and Economist Bureau of Labor Statistics. My question is regarding um, the, the policy of the government and the monetary authorities to let uh, the depression run its course during the 1920 and 1921 episode. Um, how influential was that the monetary arrangement at that time was a gold standard, gold exchange standard for for the monetary authorities to be locked up into letting laissez-faire laissez policy run its course rather than interve active interventionism that we see today by central banks? Who'd like to start? Larry? Well, uh, it was important in the giving the Federal Reserve the sense that they had a constraint. Uh, they couldn't just continue to support the inflation. Uh, Benjamin Strong realized that the price level was inconsistent with remaining on the gold standard. Now, the constraint was weaker than it might have been because so many countries in Europe were not going back to the gold standard very promptly. And there was a lot of gold lodged in the United States that had come over from Europe during the First World War. Uh, so I think it helped create, as I said, I think it helped create an environment where people expected prices to return closer to normal. Uh, of course, the whole Harding uh, campaign platform was a return to normalcy, and that was part of the idea of returning to normal. But the, the new normal was higher prices because the use of gold was being skimped on by so many countries in Europe, with the exception of France. You know, that uh, might add this to Larry's thought, uh, uh, the, the, Larry pointed out that there was, a, there's, there's, a, there's a, almost, as it were, a physical constraint in the Fed's capacity to manage an inflationary monetary policy. There was also a, a kind of a, 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 a humbler constraint of, uh, in the fiscal side of things. Uh, Benjamin Strong was taxed um, by one of his critics for the Fed's failure to adequately do this or that with regard to war finance. And he wrote back to his critic that uh, there's was, there was only so much paper, only so many engravers who were 
capable of, of doing the work and only so much ink we could get. And we, we did our best <laughs> at creating these. So if you, if you compare this to the present day, think about the dematerialization of, of money. Uh, the cost of production is, is obviously and literally zero. Um, and then think too about the dematerialization of words to talk about the dematerialization of money. That too is for free. Uh, you don't have to buy newsprint and ink today to have your say, nor do you have to if you're central bank. So the dematerialization of everything having to do with money from the point of view of production to the point of view of critic criticism and cheerleading, is it's, it's all for nothing. So uh, yeah, so it's a different world. I could add just one thing to that. Uh, it pays to recall as well that in 1920, 21, uh, what was still... Uh, left of the gold standard was, as far as those abiding by it were concerned, still the, the classical gold standard. As yet, there, there had been no arrangements uh, such as those that led to the establishment of the gold exchange standard where bankers felt themselves uh, duty-bound to conserve on gold and make dealings with one another to make sure gold didn't flow out here or go over there and what have you. Those kinds of gold economizing arrangements hadn't been set up yet. And so uh, the more old-fashioned gold orthodoxy was still in effect for the countries that renewed gold payments as the U.S. had done. And, and come the turn, come the, uh, the, the bottom of the cycle, uh, one of the points of stimulus, uh, to use a modern word, was the inflow of gold. Uh, gold came into this country uh, in part to discharge debts. We were exporting more than importing, and, and the uh, debtor countries had to pay with something. They could pay with securities or gold or merchandise, and they were incapable of sending merchandise at our cost. So they sent gold, and the gold, to a degree, came because the prices of American assets were so fetching. So with, you know, with these stocks trading where they were, the, the rails, the, the um, the Dow Jones Railroad Index made a low in the spring of 1921 that took it back to the levels of 1898. Now, this is reflecting in part government nationalization and, and the uncertainty having to do with the Interstate Commerce Commission granting rate relief. But America was on the bargain counters, on the bargain counter with respect to real estate, with respect to equities, um, and, and uh, the price mechanism worked with regard to the asset markets as well. Got time for one, perhaps two more questions. Okay, one in, in the, the back and then right here in the front row. Hello, uh, <clears throat> my question is for Mr. Powell. Uh, what, uh, what do you think the method used by uh, hiring will produce is applied to this crisis that happened in 2007? Well, that was solved privately, wasn't it? You're talking about the, uh, the the crash of 1907, where J.P. Morgan the, famously invited others to come the, in the room. The method used by uh, Mr. Harding, Harding, if they was applied to the crisis in 2007, what would be the outcome? What would be the outcome if the Harding Mellon policies were applied to two, oh to 2007? I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I think it would be better. The, uh, uh, the uh, gentleman in front previously asked uh, wh why, why, uh, why uh, uh, we, we don't uh, um, 
I forget what your question was. It was, uh, but the the answer is uh, right. The right. I I think the answer to that question is that the uh, the uh, great contraction firmly seems to have firmly established in policymakers' minds that the worst possible thing is contraction. Therefore, you do anything. You flood the system with money. There's no really no effective limit. And uh, I, I think uh, the, what, what we have to do is, is let, the, let the price system function. Otherwise, we get what we, by suppressing incentives of people to adapt to changing circumstances, we, we get what we have seen in this country of uh, uh, a so-called recovery that stinks year after year after year and the similar problem, similar stagnation in, in Europe and in Japan because we're, we're uh, delaying whatever the j adjustments that have to be made. So in the short term, uh, if, if we had not bailed out Wall Street, uh, a lot of those firms would have gone bankrupt. But there's a lot of money in the country. What basically would happen, I expect, and I'm not an expert on these like, like the other gentlemen, but uh, uh, I, I think for, for the, uh, the, the big uh, entrenched New York firms that were playing the the uh, debt game and the uh, you know, mortgage-backed securities game and all that—they they, they, might have been wiped out. But there are a lot of other a lot of other banks in the country that had nothing to do with it. So I, I think you probably would have seen regional institutions that had held on to their money instead of betting in all this all these securities that nobody understood. I you know uh, and and that would have taken care of the. Uh, moral hazard problem. Governments cannot manage moral hazard because of political political pressures to give you know give people favors and exempt them from laws that apply to other people and so on. Uh, uh, th those who who took you know were they're they're adults and they you know they uh, they're 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 grown ups and they took their risks and they got wiped out by doing things that really in retrospect made no sense at all. We, we would get a chance to meet a whole new class of people who, who run their businesses. I mean, this is the same as uh, I remember Ronald Coase, for whom I was privileged to do some research, was, was repeatedly making the case that uh, there, there's really no, it's, it's not a very good case that can be made for treating bankers differently than everybody else. Obviously, the underlying fear is if enough banks fail, you get a contraction. And there are other laws that contributed to the downfall of banks going into the Great Depression. But if you're applying, you're asking, what would we have done back in the, the uh, you know, when the meltdown started? Um, I, I think the government should have stepped aside. And that, that would have been a very tough, tough short-term period. But as I said, we find a lot of other people who were hanging on to their money, had different policies, and they would have been the new... Uh, you know, the future of Wall Street. I'm afraid uh, we've, we've run out of time, sorry, Kurt. Uh, but, uh, but there will be lunch, of course, and uh, books on, their, on the way there to pick up. There's also, I should point out, uh, this is all on the uh, second floor of the spiral staircase. Restrooms on your way to lunch. Look for the yellow wall. So uh, with that, uh, I'll thank all of our speakers again. And uh, we'll